0: Ladies and gentlemen, dear colleagues, good evening. And welcome to this uh, satellite symposium about evolving treatment roadmap for uh, advanced and high-risk non-melanoma skin cancer. First of all, we would like to thank to Sanofi for giving us the opportunity to participate to this uh, interesting symposium and uh, we will discuss about the uh, advances in non-melanoma skin cancer. Here, the disclaimer. And here, the speaker disclosure. Uh, we have uh, an outstanding faculty, uh, and uh, I'd like to introduce the agenda and the faculty. After my introduction, uh, I will give you uh, an overview about the current landscape in immunoncology for the treatment of patients with non-melanoma Skin cancer. After this, uh, Professor Risching will talk about how to treat difficult cases with advanced uh, SCC. And then Professor Gropp will give us some information about how to treat difficult cases with advanced BCC. And finally, Professor Schadendorf will talk about uh, what are the remaining unmet needs in clinical management of. Uh, non-melanoma skin cancer. After this, we have uh, 50 minutes for uh, Q&A. And uh, at the end, you can also send your questions uh, by your smartphone using uh, your QR code that you can look here in your page. And uh, we have an iPad and we can manage also these uh, uh, questions. A couple of slides just to introduce the normal melanoma skin cancer, as you can see here, uh, there is a projection with an increase of the normal melanoma skin cancer in the next year, as you can see here in the male and female, and this is mainly for uh, the elderly uh, patients, as you can see. And uh, what is interesting in the field of normal melanoma skin cancer, but I would say in general skin cancer, um, if you look the tumor mutational board and pd one expression, these are the tumors with a uh, uh, higher expression, with a higher TMB and higher expression of pd one and this makes cutaneous uh, cell carcinoma and uh, basal cell carcinoma particularly responsive to uh, immunotherapy. We will uh, uh, give a look to the results in this field with the checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, here the timeline for the regulatory approval of the checkpoint inhibitors, uh, some of you remember that Avelumab was approved by FDA and EMA in 2017 and for the Merkel cell carcinoma, and you know Merkel cell carcinoma, it's uh, a rare uh, cutane, uh, cutaneous cancer. And uh, in 2018, we got the approval from FDA for year, semirpembrolizumab for MCC, and EMA semi in 2019, and recently, in the last two years, we had the approval of PEMBRO for first metastatic and then locally advanced cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, and last year we had the approval by FDA and EMA about pembrolizumab in advanced basal cell carcinoma. So having said that, it's now the time to talk about uh, the current landscape uh, uh, in immunology in treatment of patients with um, non-melanoma skin cancers. So, as you know, when we talk about skin cancer, we talk about several different entity, and uh, among these, the 80% is of non-melanoma skin cancer. The 20% is the other skin cancer, like also melanoma. In this 80%, the 70% is for basal cell carcinoma, 20% for the cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, and another 10% for other disease. So the majority of no melanoma skin cancer, the majority of skin cancer is no melanoma skin cancer. But the majority of these skin cancer uh, are fortunately uh, curable by surgery. When we talk about advanced skin cancer, uh, we talk about two groups. One is the locally advanced disease. So sometimes, often, Uh, one very large or multiple primary tumors, or the classical metastatic disease in both regional lymph node or distant metastasis. And in general, the risk factor are some comorbidities, for instance, uh, hematological malignancy lies in the CLL, or neglection, we are used to see very big tumor, and this is something that generally is related to the neck or immunosuppressor, uh, particularly in the patients with organ transplant. Anyway, fortunately, this present a, a rare patients population. And uh, but yes, rare population, but we see these cases. These are a couple of cases from my institution of patients with the cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma here other two different cases. So these are patients that, unfortunately, exist, despite the possibility to cure this cancer at the beginning just with surgery. The treatment of uh, the advanced melanoma uh, was different before immunotherapy. And uh, before immunotherapy, we treated these patients with radiotherapy, with chemotherapy, with platinum-based regimen, with uh, Good response, but short duration of response. So the patients were not cured by chemotherapy. And uh, there was also uh, an interest for the EGFR inhibitors uh, like cetuximab, panetimumab, or dacometinib. As you can see, 30% of response, but again, no real impact on the disease. With the anti-PD-1, the story of this disease is changing and we will discuss in a while, the results of anti-PD-1. So, when we talk about anti-PD-1, as you have seen in the timeline of checkpoint inhibitors approval, we talk about pembrolizumab and semiplimab. So, I mentioned to the pembrolizumab results that brought to the approval in uh, cutaneous common cell carcinoma, locally advanced metastatic, as you can see, the results from the k 6 to 9 in terms of overall survival was 50% for the locally advanced and 35% in the metastatic with the median duration of response not reached and with uh, a duration response at one year, as you can see, of uh, 84% for the locally advanced and 78% for uh, uh, the, the, the metastatic disease. The safety profile was consistent with the safety profile that we've seen in all the other diseases like melanoma and uh, uh, lung cancer. Uh, talking about uh, semiplimab, uh, um the study that brought to the approval was this study, the Empower CCC1, uh, a study with different cohorts. Uh, now I'll show you the, the results from the first three cohorts. These are the final results because you remember there were different uh, report, and uh, the different group where uh, the treatment for the metastatic, the locally advanced uh, and also metastatic with a different schedule, the, the flood dose every three weeks. And the primary point was the response rate. Uh, looking the patient demographic, it's uh, interesting to see the characteristics of the patients, that are the characteristics of patients that we see usually. In our clinical practice, the median age is more than seven years. And uh, there was also a good number of patients with the performance status one, 55%. Uh, uh, 60% of patients were patients with metastatic disease, 40% with the locally advanced. Good number of patients treated in the first line, 66%. And uh, uh, the remaining of patients, uh, uh, 33% in, in second line. And uh, here, the duration of response and uh, the response rate. Uh, it's interesting to see, looking to the total population, the 193 patients, uh, the response rate was uh, 47%. Uh, the number of complete response, 70%, and this is interesting, with a 30% of patients with a, uh, partial response. And uh, the median duration of response, as you can see, was uh, 41.3, and this looks really, really uh, interesting. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of progression-free survival and overall survival, these are the course, very interesting with a median progression-free survival, more than 22 months. and It's interesting, uh, the estimated probability of overall survival at four years was uh, 61.8 months, so interesting uh, data. In terms of safety, as I told you, uh, no new of uh, uh, adverse event, and uh, if we look to the grade tree, any, about 50%, but the number of patients who uh, that, uh, discontinued treatment for toxicity was 6.7%, and uh, this is still consistent with the data that we've seen with NDPD1 in uh, the other uh, disease. Uh, the most important uh, um, immune-related adverse event was uh, uh, pre that you know, it's one of the classical adverse events, even related that we see with anti-PD-1 patients. Um, here the, the results from uh, the group six. The um, group six was uh, a cohort of patients treated with the flat dose every uh, three weeks, but uh, with the switch to the sub-Q uh, every three weeks or Q6 in case of uh, uh, patients with uh, stable, uh, stable disease response uh, after 27 weeks. So this is an interesting court, and the data are consistent with uh, the data that we have seen for the court one, two, three, with response rate 45%, was 47%. In the slide that I uh, uh, previously showed you, with uh, uh, interesting also number of partial response, about 40%. Media duration not reached yet, the same for the median overall survival. Safety the same that uh, I just showed you, so no new signal with the, the same safety profile uh, from the anti PD1. I'd like now to show you a couple of uh, interesting, some interesting cases that we treated in our institution. You know that uh, the cutaneous common cell carcinoma of the lips or uh, auricular are. Uh, Particularly aggressive, and as you can see here, we have a, uh, an early response uh, in, in the patients treated with uh, semiplimab, uh, with uh, uh, no side effect, just a pruritus for both these patients. And here, another case with a uh, uh, locally advanced cutaneous uh, um, squamous cell carcinoma with good response. These are two cases: one of the scalp, another one still preauricular, uh, and as you can see, very good response. In a uh, uh, in short uh, uh, period. Uh, what about the next? Uh, this will, uh, uh, cover, will be covered by Professor Schadendorf, but I'd like to mention um, a trial. So during this um, ESMO meeting, you will hear more uh, about new adjuvant because uh, we will see tomorrow some interesting data in the field of melanoma. But the data in the, the cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma looks really, really interesting. This is a, an experience from the MD Anderson uh, with a new adjuvant approach, two cycles, then surge and then adjuvant treatment for uh, uh, the remaining 11 uh, months with the uh, um, And uh, if you look, the, the major uh, pathological responses, uh, uh, considered both the major and complete response, it's 75%. And uh, you know that uh, uh, this kind of uh, pathological response is correlated uh, with the long term outcome. And uh, here you can see how these patients uh, uh, went in terms of recurrent free survival. No patients recurred. the number of patients enrolled was 20. Small, but still, these are interesting um, data. Uh, we are doing a similar trial uh, in Italy, the uh, Neosesc, uh, uh, really similar to the MD Anderson uh, trial, uh, and uh, very soon we uh, will enroll the, uh, the 25 patients that uh, we consider uh, for the trial. We'll see if uh, uh, will be confirmed uh, this number of patients with the, um, the pathological, major pathological response. Um, About uh, the BCC, you know, the basal cell carcinoma is uh, the most frequent skin cancer, and uh, we have seen this uh, at the beginning. Um, In the majority of cases, 80% tries in head and neck, and uh, when we talk about uh, the advanced BCC, we talk, and both locally and metastatic, we talk uh, of a few patients just the top of uh, an iceberg because it's more frequent In more than 90%, I would say 99% of patients uh, BCC can be solved just by the surgical uh, um, approach. So uh, I'm a medical oncologist and before the edge inhibitor I never seen a patients with metastatic BCC probably because we uh, didn't do the CT scan in these patients, but it's something that we see. It's rare, really rare, but we see. And um, with the h inhibitor, uh, um, we, we, we changed the history of uh, uh, these patients with uh, uh, a good number of patients with the complete uh, response. But h drug inhibitor uh, have also a toxicity. It's uh, uh, not a really severe toxicity, because in the field of oncology we see uh, you know, even uh, uh, worse toxicity, but there are some toxicities, like, like the cramps, you know, a ge- a geosia, this geosia, that uh, have an important impact on the quality of life. And sometimes these patients ask to interrupt the treatment and discontinue. And we know that in patients who discontinue the treatment in uh, about 30% we have a, a, a relapse. For this reason, this kind of patients who progressed from a drug inhibitor, or were intolerant to uh, a drug inhibitor therapy, it uh, will start this trial, the Empower BCC1, still with pembrolizumab with the flat dose in both locally advanced and metastatic disease. Still overall response rate primary uh, endpoint. And again, if we look, the patients' characteristics, again, these are elderly patients, uh, more male. Uh, 70% and 66% in different court. Uh, more patients with uh, ECOG-0, you remember in the Power CCC, the percentage of patients with uh, uh, ECOG-0 was 33%. Um, here is 66. And uh, uh, you know, for the locally advanced, uh, uh, the patients were mainly with the, the, the primary lesion in the head and neck, in the trunk for the metastatic. And uh, the 70% of patients in both court more than 70%, where patients uh, who progressed after uh, edge of inhibitor uh, treatment. And here the data, and uh, Uh, as you can see, in the uh, uh, both court with the the metastatic uh, and the locally advanced, this was the primary analysis here, the longer longer term follow-up, the number of response was uh, uh, between 25, and uh, uh, 30% for this group of patients who progressed from a drug inhibitor uh, and uh, with an interesting uh, estimated uh, one year duration response more than uh, 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 50% in the metastatic and more than 80% in the locally advanced. Um, here, the evaluation of progression free survival and uh, overall survival in both the group with the the um, metastatic uh, and the locally, uh, uh, metastatic and locally advanced, so good course for these patients. Um, and uh, about the safety was consistent with what we've seen even the cutaneous common cell carcinoma and as I told you, in all the other cancer, this is no new signal uh, of uh, um, new adverse event, uh, even with uh, the same percentage more or less of patients who Uh, lead to uh, discontinuation. Uh, With the advent of uh, immunotherapy with the semimplimab in the field also of the advanced uh, um, BCC, uh, looking now the proposed treatment algorithms for advanced BCC from the uh, uh, NCCN guidelines, uh, um, a drug inhibitor uh, remain the first option for these patients, but in case of uh, progression or uh, um, uh, intolerant, uh, intolerance to the a inhibitor uh, um, immunotherapy with c plibamba uh, uh, at the moment is uh, the, the standard of grade. And of course, the next question will be how do in case of uh, resistant to immunotherapy and if immunotherapy may be something that uh, can be used in the first slide. But you will hear from Professor Schadendorf about uh, the unmet needs. So, in I'd like to thank you for uh, the attention and uh, I'd like now to uh, introduce uh, Professor Riesching uh, that is going to talk about how to treat difficult cases uh, uh, in patients with cutaneous common cell carcinoma.
1: Good evening. Um, so I'm going to cover the topic of how to manage difficult cases. Uh, I'm going to present a couple of cases. So this, and I'm going to ask some questions of the audience. So it'll be a little bit more interactive. It'll be a bit more interactive. Uh, if you could uh, try and download the QR code, then you'll be in. A, it'll be easier to uh, participate in the polling questions. So as we've heard, the anti-PD-1 agents semifimab and pembrolizumab have demonstrated significant activity in advanced cutaneous SCC in immunocompetent patients, and have become the standard of care in many countries with durable responses associated with uh, quite rapid improvements in quality of life and pain, and as we've heard, approved in uh, many jurisdictions, including, including by the EMA. One of the issues with the clinical trials, of course, is that they're a restricted population. Their patients had to be immunocompetent. Patients that were immunosuppressed were excluded, and they had to be performance status ECOG 0 to 1. And, of course, in the real world, this is often uh, patients with advanced cutaneous SCC are often elderly, and the immunosuppressed are disproportionately represented because they actually have a very poor outcome with standard surgery and uh, with or without radiotherapy. So there's been a number of real-world compassionate uh, reports now, and one of the largest, and one of the first, was from the French Compassionate Access experience, where they had 245 patients. They showed a similar response rate, around 50%, although not with central review, and showed good survival, though, as you'd expect with a different population, not as good as what was seen in the trials. This uh, study also yielded some important information that it uh, was not available from the uh, clinical trial experience. So in particular, uh, they demonstrated that the activity in the immunocompromised was actually similar to the activity seen in the immunocompetent, which is important information. They also uh, reported that perhaps progression-free survival in the non-head and neck primaries uh, was not quite as good, and somewhat, not surprisingly, uh, overall survival in the patients with Econ performance status two or, or worse, uh, didn't do. It was a, was uh, did it was a bit worse than the uh, the good performance status patients. So case one, a case of uh, extensive locally advanced disease. This is a seventy five year old man who presented with a neglected chin mass in the middle of two thousand and seventeen. He'd actually been seen about twelve months earlier, and had. Uh, declined surgery that was offered for him for a T2N2B SCC on the chin. He had a biopsy that confirmed that this was cutaneous SCC. So in 2017, you saw what uh, his disease looked like. This is the, uh, the PET scan, which shows this very extensive local regional disease, but interestingly, he has no evidence of distant metastases. can see on the CT the extensive uh, primary disease and also a large nodal mass on the left. So if you have uh, got your QR code ready or if you haven't you can download load it from there. So how would you manage this patient with very advanced uh, local regional disease? Would you offer him initial surgery with or without radiotherapy? Consider radical radiotherapy radiotherapy, chemotherapy or anti-PD-1 therapy. You can start voting now. surprising, bearing in mind what this um, symposium is about, the majority of you would, uh, would offer uh, anti-PD-1, though some people would consider surgery. So he was enrolled on this nitlumab registration trial, and after six months of treatment he'd had an excellent clinical response. You can see here a marked improvement on CT, that there was some residual abnormality. And uh, on PET scan, he was regarded as having uh, a metabolic, uh, complete response. So another question. So at this stage, at six months, he's still got some abnormality on CT, but a metabolic CR on PET. Would you cease treatment and observe? Would you continue Simipumab for one year? Continue for two years? Continue until progression? Or would you consolidate at this point with radiotherapy? Can start voting now. All right. So we've got quite a spectrum of answers here. Particularly concentrated on uh, really this question of duration of uh, uh, simeprevir, which we, I guess we can discuss perhaps in the in the panel dis- uh, discussion. So he con- uh, continued on simeprevir as part as, as on the on the uh, on the clinical trial, and completed two years of simeprevir in uh, August 2019. And you can see here that he's had an excellent response. His CT scan never, not surprisingly, never looks completely normal, so he's regarded as a, uh, as a partial um, response. Um, but he uh, remains uh, well and very uh, grateful for the treatment he's received. So really, the, I guess the important message here is the extent of local disease per se is, is really never a contraindication to, to trying an anti-PD-1 for this uh, disease that's quite very sensitive to immunotherapy. And the same goes for the uh, extent of metastatic disease. We've seen patients with very extensive metastatic disease have uh, very durable responses. So the next case is about, uh, revolves around the question of assessing early progression. The patient's a 52-year-old man, immunocompetent, no significant comorbidities, presented with a scalp vertex primary SCC excised in September 2017. In July 2018, he developed an in-transit 35 millimetre right occipital metastasis. Uh, this was excised with positive margins. He had re-excision with clear margins and he had a right neck dissection at that time with one out of 41 nodes involved, 18 millimetres with extra extension. He had post-operative radiotherapy, 66 gray and 33 fractions, completed on the 31st of October, 2018. And a month later, or less than a month later, he already had a recurrence uh, at the occipital surgical site. And obviously, this was an infield recurrence. Uh, So you can see here, um, these recurrent uh, disease. The PET scan showed the um, occipital cutaneous and subcutaneous lesions, and also some intramuscular um, metastases. The biopsy, repeat biopsy confirmed SCC consistent with the original cutaneous primary. So what would you do in this situation? Would you consider further surgery, uh, further radiotherapy, chemotherapy, or anti-PD-1 therapy? Start voting now. All right, so the uh, great majority of people would uh, go for anti PD 1 therapy at this point, or 11% would, would have another go at surgery. So, he was enrolled on a Cimplomate trial, first dose December 18, 2018. He, I think he was in group four, so he was on four-weekly treatment and not the standard three-weekly, but he comes in a month later, and this is what his disease looks like. You can see that a lot of the existing disease looks considerably worse and enlarged, and as you look more laterally, you can see lots of new lesions that weren't uh, present at, at baseline. So, very concerning. What would you do? C- uh, cease simipilimab and consider further radiotherapy. Uh, there's not an option here for consider further surgery, but perhaps take this option if that's what you would do, want to do. Cease and consider chemotherapy, cease best supportive care. Continue simipilimab, accepting that it has progressive disease and prognosis is poor, or consider the pos- continue c- ex- considering the possibility of pseudo progression. So, a few options there. So Again, in respect of uh, answers, 71% will continue recognising the possibility of pseudo-progression, uh, um, but you know, we've got 17% who would have stopped uh, at this point, or t- and 12% that would continue, but not with m- much optimism. So we did continue, and then it comes back in February, and uh, it's a bit of a mixed picture. You can see some of the new lesions that appeared more laterally have got better, but some of the existing lesions look worse. Uh, but even more concerning, it looks like there's potentially another new, newish lesion there, just lateral to the ultra- ulcerated area. So quite a, a mixed picture, but overall, look, not looking better. So what would you do now? So is it two months, he's had pro- parent progression at one month, parent progression at two months, would you cease semiplomab because he's progressed or cease because he no longer meets pseudo progression criteria with further p- progression on a sec- and second you know, on a second assessment, or would you continue semiplomab? we start voting. So we've got 69% who would continue uh, and 31% who uh, would have ceased at, at this point. We did continue, and from this point on, things started to improve. And uh, he, uh, cont- he actually uh, he had a complete response. He had the option of stopping at 12 months, and he did, elected to stop at 12 months. And I saw him a few weeks ago, and he remains in, uh, in complete uh, remission. So this is quite a challenging case, really just to emphasise that pseudoprogression, or perhaps best described here as very delayed response, uh, definitely occurs in cutaneous SCC. Uh, and uh, they're easy in retrospect, but at the time they're quite challenging, particularly if the patient has other options such as, such as surgery. Just a brief mention now, um, is most of the responses we see with CT are partial responses. Uh, we did a study looking at comparing uh, patients that had both PET and CT at late time points after 10 months. Uh, 15 patients, 11 or 73% were a complete metabolic response on PET, but of those 11, only one was a CR on resist, nine were PRs. So really consistent with the observation that many of... The, of these PRs on, on standard Im- imaging with CT or MRI have long-term disease control, and also consistent with the data, that the number of complete responses increases over time. And further studies warranted, I think, to see if this is a better indicator of long-term control than standard uh, yeah, CT imaging. And I just want to briefly mention about um, avoiding orbital exenteration in cutaneous SCC. We've reported on a series of seven patients who required orb- orbital exenteration for curative surgery, uh, who had all had uh, orbital exenteration recommended by the multidisciplinary meeting, but all seven who declined surgery due to concerns about morbidity and disfigurement. Interestingly, all seven patients demonstrated a response to immunotherapy, and six avoided orbital exenteration. But again, to highlight this difficulty, two of the... set of pseudoprogression, progression. Two of the seven experienced pseudoprogression, progression, and one of those was a patient who uh, went on to have orbital exenteration and didn't have any tumour in their specimen. So, uh, you know, just highlighting the problem of how you manage these patients uh, who appear to be progressing but may not may not be really progressing. So, the potential major role for uh, checkpoint inhibitors as primary treatment when surgery required will result in considerable morbidity, such as orbital exenteration. So in conclusion, the immune checkpoint inhibitors have clearly changed treatment paradigms in recurrent metastatic CSCC and in patients with surgery would be disfiguring. I've shown you that there's activity in both immunocomponent and immunocompromised patients. The extent of disease is not a contraindication to treatment, and delayed responses and pseudo-progression occur and can be very challenging to manage. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Then It's my pleasure now to introduce Professor Jean-Jacques Grob, that is going to talk about how to treat difficult cases with advanced BCC. The floor is, is yours, Jean-Jacques.
2: Uh, good evening. Thank you to the Sanofi for this invitation. And my task is to deal with uh, difficult to treat BCC First of all, uh, let's remind you that uh, most of the BCC are very easy to treat; most are low risk, and I, when I say most, it's probably 95, 98 percent of BCC. <coughs> but either they are difficult to treat BCC, which are not so rare, because all, despite this low proportion, this is a low proportion of a huge amount of BTC. So, first, uh, some are qualified of locally advanced, some are metastatic, but they are very, very, very rare. And um, there are a few other reasons why some BCC are difficult to treat. Um, there is a new classification provided by the EADO, uh, which is based on a, 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 an experiment in which Uh, a panel of experts were proposed to uh, classify a series of uh, cases of uh, difficult to treat BCC and mathematical analysis of their different uh, partitions resulted in uh, five scenarios which I briefly describe, Because these five scenarios are probably the, the, let's say the abstract of uh, what we meet in our current practice. The first scenario is a common BCC, but somewhat difficult to treat, because uh, some of reasons like uh, the location of the tumor, or the borders which are poorly defined, or linked to the patient because uh, of the poor general status, comorbidities, or unwillingness to cooperate. These are examples. Second situation, second scenario, <coughs> the difficulty sorry, is due to the multiplicity of common BCCs, plenty of BCC, and uh, this is complex because of this multiplicity, and it could be a, a genetic version, what we call galling syndrome, or an acquired version, but this is the same situation. Locally advanced BCC out of critical areas. I'm sorry, like in the back, like in this patient. So it's large, destructive, but there is no function uh, threat. Locally advanced in critical areas, large or destructive tumors in different positions around the mouth, around the nose, around the eyes. It's curable by surgery, but functional impairment or mutilation are inevitable. I'm sorry, extremely advanced, that means disaster, like the examples, because bone, muscle, vital or structures, thank you very much, sorry. Mm -hmm. So, the cure cannot be expected by surgery, whatever its extent, so this has resulted in a classification, in which metastatic cases have been added because they were not part of the experiment. What are our therapeutic tools in difficult to treat BCC? First, surgery and radiotherapy, surgery, including most surgery is paramount, whenever it's technically feasible, and of course it should be complete, there should not be compromised with uh, tumor margins, and the patient has to accept it. Radiotherapy is efficacious also, but uh, complete treatment cannot be really de- documented, and the you know, radiotherapy induced tissue changes may complicate uh, surgery uh, of recurrence. Uh, whether or not we should do radiotherapy after surgery is an open question, and uh, it has, in fact, never been evaluated. So, uh, surgery and radiotherapy work, but they are far from a guarantee of cure in advanced uh, diseases. The therapeutic tools uh, are also systemic therapies, edge org inhibitors, Vismodegib, and Sonidegib. Uh, to make a long story short let's say half of the patient with locally advanced bcc benefit from edge drug inhibitors a complete response rate is around uh, 20% partial response 20 to 40% few patients are cured and even after a complete response half of the patient with locally advanced bcc will relapse within 2 years good news is that if you rechallenge them with uh, edge drug inhibitors they have is comparable to the first line. Stable disease is quite difficult to interpret because we are facing a very slow disease. So when it does not really change, you never know whether you have an action or not. Uh, maybe the benefit is undetectable, uh, but maybe also this is a progression which is still hidden. There are some resistance, but uh, uh, the resistance are rare. The primary resistance are less than 10%. Whether you or not you change from Vismodejib to Sonyodejib is not a key issue in the story. And secondary resistance does exist, but it's much uh, less frequent than uh, with other targeted therapies in any other uh, solid tubers. The problem with edge or the inhibitors is common adverse events patient experience cramps, dysgosia, fatigue, alopecia, and this is (coughs) uh, affecting a lot the quality of life of patient, especially elderly patient who are the the target of this uh, advanced basal cells, carcinoma, and so it leads often to drug discontinuation. And it's very unlikely that patient can tolerate this type of treatment for years, that's the reason why we tend to perform intermittent treatment, let's say four four months or five months on and uh, four or five months off, which is a way uh, to deal with the long-term treatment. Uh, despite pharmacologic difference, uh, Fismodegime and Fistonidigime have very similar efficacy and so it's usually useless to switch from one to the other. The other therapeutic tool is PD-1 inhibitors. It has already been prevented, but let's summarize and say that uh, in locally advanced uh, BCC uh, after hedgehog failure, so second line, at least second line, uh, there is a, a response rate of about one-third, so 30%, with a complete response rate, 5%. This is from a single trial, so it cannot be established as a rule, but gives you some figures. In the metastatic BCC, very rare tumors, it's about 25% response rate. Uh, duration of response is long, with in, in those who respond, of course, um, more than 84% uh, of patients are uh, uh, still on response after one year. Quality of life is usually maintained, and adverse events are not a surprise. There are those that you meet with anti-PD-1 in any tumors. We are are expecting uh, biomarkers, but unfortunately we do not have biomarkers to say that this patient is going to respond to anti-PD-1 or not. There are plenty of trials going on. I will not get into details, but just to to tell you that we will have plenty of information about the different combination, different strategies using anti-PD-1 for advanced BCC. Let's have a look at uh, the different scenarios. What do we do in the scenario one? Common BCC is somewhat difficult to treat. Surgery first, it is the best chance for cure, depending on the technical skill of the surgeon, obviously. Uh, of the ability of, uh, of the, uh, the doctor to, to find the limits of the lesion, it's not always easy with BCC, and of course to have the agreement of the patient. The alternative to surgery, h uh, inhibitors first. Why, because it's better cosmetic outcomes, Uh, you can target lesions with uncertain limits, and uh, you can treat several BCC together, which is an advantage. But the disadvantage is that there is a much lower probability of cure than with surgery. And, Uh, the adverse events often lead to discontinuation. Radiotherapy, the advantage is uh, that you do not need to do surgery, that's the only advantage, Uh, but the uh, disadvantage is that you, you have recurrence which are difficult to manage. Anti-PD-1, probably they do not have a role in this scenario one. Scenario one example, you know, completely removable uh, BCC in the eyelid, but with edge inhibitors, you uh, come to a very good result without surgery. Uh, in this case, a very large BCC uh, here, you know, cannot uh, really Uh, establish where are the limits of this tumor and it it works very well with Hedgehog inhibitors, but it's not always the same. Uh, Another example, uh, you avoid surgery and you have a a, a quite reasonable uh, aspect of uh, uh, the mouth at the end of the story. Scenario two, Uh, difficulties due to multiplicity. Well, there are basically two strategies. Either you do multiple surgery, multiple radiotherapy, you can use also laser in equimod on the smallest one. Uh, if you use edge inhibitors, it's difficult to maintain it on a long term, and it's particularly a, a good question in the genetic version of this multiple BCC, in the Gorling syndrome, because you should have to treat the patient forever, which is impossible with these adverse events. Of course, age uh, inhibitors and surgery are not mutually ex- exclusive. An example of Gorling syndrome, when uh, treated by uh, edge inhibitors, uh, where you have rather good results, but you have to stop at one time, and then the BCC, the new BCC, uh, come again. Scenario three: uh, locally advanced, out of critical areas. Surgery remains the most reliable tra- treatment option, but and radiotherapy is often used uh, after as a, uh, uh, an adjuvant strategy. But uh, we do not have any proof that it is much better you can opt for medical option, and uh, before surgery. Why, because in fact, if you delay surgery in such a situation, it's not an issue. So, well, you can try the medical treatment for a while. org inhibitors are likely to be useful in this situation. But if you have a, a, a new adjuvant expectation, you have to know that with h inhibitors, the tumor load is decreasing, but the tumor rarely shrinks to a point uh, in which surgery would be more feasible. So you decrease tumor infiltration, but you do not shrink the tumor, and so the surgery is more or less the same. Um, in the absence of benefit to edge org inhibitors, and you can try PD-1 of, uh, inhibitors, of course, and at the end of the story, if you don't uh, succeed, then you have to go back to surgery uh, anyway. Just an example of what you can obtain with the edge org inhibitors in the good uh, situation. Scenario four, a very difficult one because it's uh, uh, locally advanced in a critical area, and surgery remains a solution, but medical option may be trialed before surgery. The advantage is that you will limit the disfigurement. You can expect a reduction of the size if at the end you have to go to surgery, but again, it usually does not work this way. Um, So the limitation is that Uh, given the rate of complete response with edge inhibitors, which is about 20%, and the rate of uh, complete response with PD-1 inhibitors in the patient resistant to edge org inhibitors, which is around 5%, the probability of real cure in a patient like this is more or less uh, uh, around 20%, no more. So it's probably much less than with surgery. But of course, uh, the disfigurement and the function uh, uh, has to be taken into account. Um, benefit may be difficult to assess in the, some treat, patients treated by inhibitors because you know the infiltration is difficult to measure, the, the real uh, situation. Uh, even if you do a, a lot of biopsy, you never know where exactly you are in the treatment. Examples of uh, the scenario four, this does not seem very spectacular, but you have a BCC which is invading uh, uh, the auditory canal and of course uh, going directly to the brain. So that's the kind of result you can obtain with edge inhibitors without any ventilation. Um, a bad example, for instance, edge inhibitors, very good uh, let's say a, a, multiple, a BCC with multiple recurrence, uh, very advanced. Um, we have the impression that it is going much better with inhibitors, and then suddenly there is a, a, a very uh, fast worsening, which is in fact due to the development of uh, squamous cell carcinoma. And we have some cases of that case with BCC treated for a long time with the inhibitors, transforming or in which uh, uh, SCC is developing in a, a, a second uh, step. Scenario five, extremely advanced. Well, surgery is no more an option in this case, so you have to try intermittent H.org or anti-PD-1 plus or minus radiotherapy, or why not combination? But there are no trials to document this possibility. Just to give you uh, an example, uh, this is a, a, a huge BCC, a disaster, treated by h inhibitors during one year, and the disaster is even more a, a disaster as a second step, as you can see here. And then, radiotherapy plus anti-PD-1. And we discovered the face of this lady that we have not seen before. So it can be a successful story, combining these uh, different treatments, but. For the moment, we don't know exactly who is the right candidate for this uh, type of treatment. Another example, uh, a combination of h inhibitors and anti-PD-1, and very successful. Of course, it does not work this way for all patients. Metastatic cases, first, they are very, very rare the probability that one of you is meeting that case, one case, is very, very low. And of course, survival of the metastatic BCC is worse when you have distant metastases than when you have regional ones. Um, What we know is that with Azure inhibitors, we have an overall response of 8%, uh, or, uh, up to 20% depending on the dose in a very low number of patients and with anti-PD-1 Probably a response rate around 25% so they are good candidates probably uh, for anti-PD-1 first line In conclusion most BCC are easy to treat but few are therapeutic challenge for different reasons There are a few scenarios that I tried to describe uh, there are In fact, driving our type of decision in the uh, tumor boards. Surgery remains a main option in most difficult to treat BCC, but the role of medical options, edge org and PD-1 inhibitors is increasing. So first line uh, of medical treatment remains uh, edge org inhibitors, but Anti-PD-1 results are so encouraging that they may uh, come to the first step in, in the near future. There are plenty of studies uh, for different sequences and combinations, and we will have the res- results in the next years, and of course, we would need predictive biomarkers, but for so far, it's a dream. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jean-Jacques. It's my pleasure now to introduce Professor Schadendorf, that is going to talk about what are the remaining unmet needs in uh, uh, clinical management of non-melanoma skin cancer. Thank you, Dirk.
3: Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I think that's a very brief presentation uh, because after what you have seen, do you believe there are any unmet needs left? Uh, Let's see if anybody is awake. Um, uh. So, um, I think we have made uh, great progress, Um, no question about that. Um, So, I think um, I would like to go with you within the next um, 20 minutes, um, uh, trying to find uh, the true impact on non-melanoma skin cancers. and defining the real-world management of patients within a a registry. I'm going to introduce uh, to you um, uh, uh, in a few minutes um, and advertise not only this um, registry, but also offering that you are able to participate in that as well. Um, We have um, obviously um, a number of um, challenges if a patient is not responding or not responding anymore to PD-1 um, uh, treatment. And I will give you at the end uh, a few perspectives of treating on melanoma skin cancers, um, uh, some selected flavors uh, out of the various clinical trials we have now uh, available, which is actually per se already a a good news since uh, over the last years uh, we were looking and designing clinical trials for this rare patient population. So, um, background, uh, starting with uh, registries, Um, uh, I think we have to be aware that most of the non-melanoma skin cancers um, are excluded from common cancer registries, so that um, we have only very limited knowledge um, on the... Um, morbidity and also the outcome of these um, uh, cancers, uh, which was also reflected by the variation of percentages uh, John Jacques Grobe was presenting in his um, uh, talk and also uh, Paolo Ascierto. So we have um, limited uh, publication, limited studies in the EU, but also in the US on real world data uh, from clinical practice in those high risk and advanced um, SECs and BCCs, and patient population information is fragmented and stored separately by different disciplines, so that's also a challenge here in different countries, different pathways, dermatologists, surgeons, GPs, oncologists are involved. And um, we have uh, definitely in Europe um, no registry at all um, which is providing any of the data also, for example, in light of uh, the registration, health technology assessment, etc., etc. So the limits of our pivotal trials, um, I think we have um, discussed uh, widely, um, including, for example, that they might uh, represent only a selected patient population. And um, very often, these are phase two studies which have led to um, the registration of, uh, which are non-randomized, uh, open labeled, um, and uh, that's by, uh, by itself, uh, scientifically, is a limitation. So, um, the European Melanoma Registry, um, uh, initially, UMelarec, has uh, focused on um, on melanoma, advanced and um, also high risk melanoma. Um, and uh, the setup um, is shown here. Um, we have um, a CIO, we have an uh, executing uh, agency who is handling um, the, the legal uh, part, and we have an academic consortium uh, which now is compromising. Um, Uh, 15 different countries and societies uh, who are uh, participating in collecting uh, standardized and harmonized uh, common uh, real-world data from skin cancers. Um, As I said, um, um, up to August uh, we have almost 10,000 melanoma data sets which are quality controlled uh, from those uh, countries. And uh, we have set up uh, over the last uh, four years a digital infrastructure with central um, access uh, uh, to do that. Um, And also uh, ways of multi-data source integration from various countries and uh, national registry in one data warehouse and um, this is run uh, by a couple of experts including um, also the well-known Italian head Professor Ascierto who is part of the steering committee. So um, this registry um, has started and is going to open now um, a branch for non-melanoma Uh, skin cancers and uh, this is also uh, supported by for example EIDO and EOTC and um, we hope that uh, by this it will be possible um, that we have joint forces um, which is overcoming the lack of existing uh, skin cancer registries um, in Europe uh, and possibly even uh, um, uh, extending uh, to other continents as well um, and that this um, uh, might contribute um, to um, uh, databases by standardized uh, informatic uh, formats. Um, uh dedicated uh, technical staff which is supporting data transfer uh, with proper data protection and management of all these mapping processes and um, quality control uh, issues uh, which are uh, uh, possible. So this is an electronic way of capturing data using an eCRF for tumor documentation which is tailored uh, to the needs of the treating physician and um, even if you don't have a, a registry or if your center isn't having um, a registry, we are able to provide either the the eCRF access or setting up uh, for example also national uh, uh, registries as we have done in the past for for example various countries for melanoma. So if you are interested please contact me um, or uh, uh, the email which is um, given here to find a solution to participate and you are cordially invited uh, for this initiative. So one initiative, um, which is uh, much smaller, is the case study, um, uh, which is uh, shown here, the the study design and uh, patient demographics, uh, which is um, a prospective uh, real world uh, study of uh, of patients with advanced CSCC, uh, treated with semiplimab, um, aiming uh, to collect 250 to 350 patients um, in the label uh, uh, to be treated with uh, semiplimab, so un- unsuitable to surgery and uh, radiation therapy. and. Um, Data collection uh, on a regular basis and follow up for three years. Um, And um, as you can see, endpoints, response rate, duration, uh, disease control rate, uh, toxicity, um, and all of that. So, median duration uh, of exposure um, of the first um, 196 patients was. almost 24 months, um, as you see here. Um, And I think what is also important and slightly different to the clinical trials, the median age uh, of patients included is 76 years. Um, And you see also that there is a substantial fraction of patients even in such a study, which has um, um, uh, um, ECOG status of one, two, and three, even three. The um, uh, proportion between locally advanced and metastatic is uh, one to two, um, 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 and there is heavy uh, pretreatment treatment uh, in terms of um, radiation or uh, surgery, and there is also systemic, uh, prior systemic treatment in almost 45% of the patients um, which um, are, have been included into this study. So the efficacy and uh, safety is shown here, Uh, efficacy on the left-hand side, uh, and this is uh, given for patients enrolled um, uh, up to um, cycle three, Um, and you see the overall response rate is close to 40%, very uh, close to the uh, clinical data we have seen in our clinical study, uh, with a complete response rate of um, 9.8 and a a partial response rate of 27.6%. Um, safety, um, and I think everybody who has used the drug uh, uh, is well aware, this is uh, a well-tolerated drug even in elderly patients, even in comorbid um, patients with, um, w- with toxicities leading to discontinuation only in 2.6 and 5 out of almost 200 patients, so I think that's uh, remarkable. Um, there is roughly any treatment-related, uh, immune-related, RE um, um, uh, in 25% of the patients, but um, I think most of these toxicities are well handled and well, well tolerated and uh, reversible. I think that's important to keep in mind. So. What we see in terms of efficacy and toxicity um, is, in general, consistent with those observed in our clinical trials. So, I think the challenge starts now. Uh, What are the options if patients are not benefiting anymore? And um, right now, there is no treatment option approved by... FDA or EMA for those uh, uh, patients that have progressed on PD-1 uh, treatment. Um, I mean, there are some examples, and you have seen in the cases, uh, hidden by John Jack, um, uh, Danny, and uh, also Paolo. Uh, there are attempts um, uh, to do so, for example, a combination of cetuximab um, or combinations of these uh, agents are possible uh, treatment options. Um, however, there is no established um, efficacy and also the the toxicity profile is not studied in a systematic way. So new treatment options are needed um, um, to rescue these patients, to increase potentially also in first line higher the response rates and the durability of of these responses. And um, definitely we need treatment options to rescue PD-1 refractory patients, possibly even with less toxicity. So uh, what do we have? I mean, uh, the usual um, thing is when we talk about that, do we have biomarkers? Um, Actually, we have plenty of biomarkers um, and um, uh, we have uh, tumor-intrinsic biomarkers, we have uh, immune-specific or associated biomarkers, we have combinational biomarkers, um, mostly studied, studied, for example, tumor-mutational burden or inflammatory signature like interferon gamma my signature problem is they are not prospectively validated. So they have been described, and we have produced various uh, good papers in high-ranking journals, but they have not been used as a guidance in our clinical trials. They have not been validated uh, prospectively, so that's actually missing. Um, and I mean, we have on top uh, uh, um, of the biomarkers, we have obviously also alternative targets, um, and uh, you have heard, um, Paulo Acerto's talk already about the Hedgehog pathway, um, which is a potential a target um, on tumor cells. Um, on STCs, uh, we know that the EGFR receptor is frequently expressed and is uh, related to, to cell growth and uh, proliferation. We know that radiation, um, rate, uh, radiation is a frequently used treatment uh, paradigm in non-melanoma skin. cancers which have not been integrated um, um, in a prospective fashion to to be systematically studied um, in our uh, treatment algorithms. Everybody is using it but there is no standard how to do it right or best. Um, And um, there are several other options um, with new agents, Uh, for example, oncolytic viral uh, therapies uh, could be used. Or uh, there are also uh, trying to amplify these inflammatory signals, uh, which are what we know important for uh, immune response. To increase cytotoxicity of our T cells, for example, or to overcome um, some of the resistance mechanism. So. I think um, that based on these scenarios, biomarkers, uh, understanding, and also targets, uh, we now have clinical trials, for example, in um, cutaneous SCC, um and um, I have selected a, a few of them uh, which are listed here, and I'm not able um, to talk about all of those. Um, I'm just focusing on these highlighted uh, and uh, recently presented uh, uh, um, Uh, trials, because otherwise you will not have deny at all. So um, um, here you see uh, also in second line trying to to overcome resistance, there are first attempts to do so. For example, uh, you see combinations of cetuximab. And, um, and also uh, um, hedgehog inhibitors in combination with um, with checkpoint blockade. We have completely new drugs, uh, you have never heard about it, like, for example, anti-human uh, complement factor C5, uh, which is being tested. So again, um, I, I think there is um, a large fraction of um, opportunities currently for centers and for physicians to, uh, to test. Um, in, in these small clinical trials, um, uh, patients and uh, activity and also toxicity, but um, there are no results which are really uh, paving the way to the next um, a breakthrough. So I think what is um, definitely one of the most promising approaches, and uh, Paolo was already referring to that, is a parisurgical uh, um, uh, treatment of those um, uh, tumors. And uh, that has has been tested over the last uh, years. Um, And I mean, it's not only neoadjuvant, uh, but also the adjuvant uh, testing. And the adjuvant uh, uh, trial C-POST, many of you will know, is still an ongoing and recruiting uh, study looking for high-risk patients. So um, don't miss the opportunity to put your patients on or refer your patients uh, to a trial center where this trial is open. I think what has uh, drawn a lot of attention is uh, the neoadjuvant approach. So treat early, as um, um, uh, Paolo was explaining, and see how that is um, uh, having an effect on your tumor and potentially um, um, omitting surgery at all. And we will see, um, I think tomorrow, um, the the presentation by Neil Gross, and also the the subset parallel publication in a very high-ranking journal, which we usually uh, like to uh, publish our um, uh, breakthrough papers um, uh, in in melanoma. So I'm not able to talk about this uh, in detail, but maybe you have some fantasy what that could be. Um, So um, I think the trial design is is given here. Um, uh, Paolo was already referring to that two cycles of semi map um, given as um as a treatment, then surgery. Um, the beauty of these new adjuvant approach is that you can collect uh, tumor uh, samples and can analyze uh, tumor samples, looking for biomarkers and also response associated markers. Um, whether you need adjuvant therapy thereafter is something uh, we need to uh, um, discuss uh, at a later time point. Uh, response rate and secondary endpoints, and I mean, we know from earlier um, um, studies. studies already that those patients, and this is um, actually uh, very similar to, for example, melanoma, those patients achieving a complete response pathologically, or in uh, uh, almost um, a major pathological response, reducing the the amount of viable tumor cells to less than 10%, those patients seem to be those patients in the red curve p- potentially cured. I mean, the uh, survival uh, or the follow-up is, is still uh, limited, and the number of patients uh, um, uh, to highlight is, is still small. So we need more patients in order to to, to, to see what is happening. And t- tomorrow you will see some more. And this is um, actually the study uh, which is going to be presented uh, tomorrow by by Neil. Uh, 80 patients um, and um, a near adjuvant treatment a surgery for those. And then um, uh, there was uh, investigators' choice whether continue uh, map or adjuvant uh, radiation therapy or uh, investigators' discretion or observation. Tomorrow we will um, learn about the part one results um, and have to wait for the re- outcome of part two uh, uh, for some time. So there are, uh, that's the post adjuvant trial, which I advertised a little bit earlier, which is a double-blind randomized phase three study in high-risk uh, um, um, SECs, um, uh, as you can see, post operative uh, radiation therapy is mandatory and one of the hurdles of the study but then uh, patients uh, after having gotten everything what is there uh, are randomized either uh, to simmap or placebo and uh, disease control is the primary endpoint of the study and still looking for patients. 412 patients um, are are needed, and I think this is one of the first studies in non-melanoma skin cancer, which is using a a double-blind, randomized trial design. Um, All our approvals have been based on um, um, single-arm studies uh, so far. So what are the high risk features? Just to summarise and to give you some repetition, um, obviously uh, nodal uh, disease um, uh, of certain size, in-transit metastasis of a certain size, T four lesions um, uh, which are necessary per- perineural uh, invasion um, is um, an important chara- uh, characteristic and a recurrent SEC um, a- uh, arises in that area. So I think that's important to keep in mind and if you have a patient, um, if you come across a patient, send it to a center um, um, or include it into the clinical trial. So here are the contact um, details, uh, so iPhones up, uh, make a, a photo and um, then uh, we can continue. Um, so. Coming to a conclusion, I think uh, I try to advertise and invite you to participate in our non-melanoma skin uh, cancer registry um, as part of Umelarec, which is um, collecting prospectively uh, data of non-melanoma skin cancer patients across Europe. Uh, there are also possibilities to include patients who you have already in your own registry. Um, Treatment options after PD-1 failure um, remain a high unmet uh, clinical need and there are several clinical trials ongoing to evaluate uh, alternatives. Uh, to to, um, overcome uh, PD-1 progression. Uh, There are first combination studies also in advanced BCC, for example, in combination with Hedgehog inhibitors. And uh, the next hot issue is perioperative um, options, adjuvant and neoadjuvant um, in BCC and uh, SEC patients. Thank you for your attention and... uh,
0: Thank you, Dirk. Uh, it's the time now of the discussion. Uh, we have uh, 30 minutes. It's a good time. So, uh, I'd like to encourage all of you to send questions by your smartphone. And uh, there are some questions here.
3: Yeah? I have a question for you, Paolo. Okay, good. So, because you are tr- uh, stuck otherwise to, the, uh, to your <laughs> computer all uh, the I- time. So- You presented uh, survival data, overall survival uh, of patients uh, uh, in the clinical trial who have been treated uh, with BCC, advanced BCC, and SEC. Do you think that in this elderly patient population, overall survival is really a good endpoint to report?
0: No, no, Uh, especially for the BCC, because, uh, you know, the, the, the biology of the BCC is different from the... Uh, um, what is the most interesting part is the tail of the course of the progression for survival because the, these are the patients who no relapse. And with immunotherapy, there is an interesting tail of the patients with the long-term benefit. This is what I look when I see data from immunotherapy in this kind of patient.
3: So maybe also for Denny, I mean, the question is, do we have really a good idea how many patients are dying from non-tumor underlying morbidities, older age or com- comorbidities, in contrast to a disease-specific, tumor-specific um, um, mortality? Oh, do yeah, we have this is do an we have a, a, idea?
0: This is, no, unfortunately not at this moment. This is an important point. I believe that the clinical registry can help in this. So this is a, the, the, the classical asses that, you know, in general you do in order to encourage further registry. So yes, I, I fully agree with you.
1: Yeah, no, I think we saw in the clinical trial, these are elderly patients, we we see patients dying from other causes, and outside of the clinical trials, it's even more common as we treat patients with uh, poorer performance status and multiple comorbidities, and there are often some very difficult decisions to make about with these patients. Yeah.
0: Do you want to comment something, Georges?
2: Well, probably with this tumor, we need new uh, evaluation, new assessment, when you say that, uh, you want to prevent um, orbit beat exenteration or uh, when you see the face of these people, uh, there could be some assessment of the benefit, I would say functional or uh, aesthetic benefit uh, when you preserve your eye or when you preserve your face, it's a benefit which is probably hard to standardize in a measurement but more relevant than the OS in a tumor which, anyway, will not kill you uh, in the the next five or 10 years. But we need new assessment method, I think.
0: So not only the smartphone for asking questions, but also the microphone, microphone number one. Uh, Thank you for the presentations. Uh, My doubt is,
4: do you have an impression or is there any data regarding efficacy of semiplimab in sun-exposed versus non-exposed tumors, like user-related tumors versus sun-exposed areas? Is there any difference in the efficacy, is there any data or your impression? and the same with radiated versus non-irradiated tumors.
0: Jean-Jacques, this is the classical question for you. Well,
2: uh, most of the squamous cell carcinoma and BCC are in uh, sun uh, areas. The only exception would be, for instance, uh, SCC on leg ulcers or that kind of yeah. things, uh, provided you consider that the leg is not exposed to the sun. Wish. Uh, so, uh, uh, probably, the, uh, let's say the, uh, the sun exposure is a, a, a rather good factor to predict uh, response to PD 1 for many reasons. But by definition, these tumors are all on sun exposed areas, so you <laughs> cannot really compare. Uh, uh, to anything else.
4: Okay, so so, so, so I, can pick on, I can pick on Paulo and ask about Gorlin. Would be the next question. <laughs> what is your impression of efficacy of PD one in Gorlin syndrome?
2: I have no experience. I have no experience in Gorlin, so I don't know my friends. But uh, you have some experience? Dear? No, no, no. inhibitors, uh, I can tell you because I have used them. And,
4: and what about radiotherapy? Any any thoughts on? pre-radiated versus, because we, we are discussing on our tumor boards of maybe sometimes to keep, to put radio, radiation therapy
3: post as a consolidation strategy also. So. Yeah, so, so I mean there are very tiny little data set I think from Empower um, uh, One SEC uh, with pre-treatment uh, of radiation which I think needs to uh, definitely validation. Um, which um, ch- suggests that those patients having uh, uh, pre-treatment radiation might do worse, um, and you could explain that that uh, you are inducing scarring and whatever uh, in that uh, uh, region. Um, whether this is really true, I'm, I'm not sure. I think maybe the uh, registry will help also with that um, and I mean also radiation oncologists believe that there might be some synergy between radiation and um, uh, checkpoint blockade. If you do it simultaneously because you are releasing tumour antigens or whatever, whether this is true. This is Uh, for for concurrent radiation, right? Yeah, yeah, concurrent. But I mean, this is also not tested uh, uh, as far as I know.
0: So, and about radiation, there is an interesting question for you, Danny. There are a couple of questions for the clinical case number two. So, generated uh, a lot of curiosity. And uh, the first question is, uh, since differentiation between pseudo and the real progression is only possible in retrospect. Why don't you consider adding radiotherapy when the patients develop new lesion?
1: Uh, so this is a patient that had, had uh, radiotherapy and it had actually recurred within the in the field within a month. So giving, and it had a high dose of radiation, 66 gray. So I don't think it's realistic that giving more radiation yeah, at this point, is really going, yeah, going to be uh, beneficial at all.
0: For you Jean-Jacques mm-hmm. and Dirk, do you use uh, the addition of radiotherapy sometimes when the patients develop new lesion or in case of mixed response? Uh,
2: yes, but I have no rule, no algorithm, no. <laughs> To propose, uh, uh, as you said in the tumor board, uh, at the end of the story, we decide sometime to use radiotherapy, but uh, uh, we need uh, some data to
0: to support that. Yeah. Uh, another question about the case two, and then the microphone <coughs> three. Uh, the question is still for that clinical cases: uh, was there an additional workup done to support the decision to continue the treatment?
1: Uh, so this this I didn't show the scans looked similar to what you could see clinically they didn't really add any extra um, information. so really it was a, a clinical call. Uh, I think in this patient it was very unlikely that other treatments were going to have any long term control. He'd relapse early after uh, surgery and after radiotherapy, so I think biologically it was not it, we thought that further surgery or further radiotherapy was was unlikely to have any major impact. Um, I, I guess at this point in time, I'd had, I'd seen a number of these patients, so I still thought there was a, a, you know, some chance that he was not really progressing, so that's why um, we persisted. Uh, he was well, uh, he wasn't, cl- he sim- wasn't, you know, had symptoms that were getting worse, so, and he was keen to, to get, continue as well. But these decisions are not straightforward and they're even less straightforward if you do have a genuine surgical option. Obviously, you can always try other systemic therapies, but they're unlikely to result in durable control. And I guess you really want want to be absolutely sure that you haven't uh, stopped too soon. Microphone number three.
0: Yeah, so my question is regarding re challenge with anti PD1 after, uh, in case of
3: progression after completion of two years of uh, anti PD1 therapy. Do we have any data or experience?
0: Dirk, it's your question.
3: <laughs> so, I mean, uh, I would uh, suspect it would not be different um, in um, um, SECs than, for example, in uh, cell or Merkel. Uh, I mean, we, I mean, There is only a minority of patients who are really getting two years of treatment, Uh, either you are progressive beforehand, which is the majority of the patients, or um, there are patients who have a complete uh, response and then there is a discussion about stopping uh, these patients and not keeping them coming back uh, again and again. Uh, But um, there is a fraction of patients, obviously, uh, as you mentioned, who have, uh, after clinical benefit, um, um, then uh, a relapse. And we would always consider those patients for, for retreatment. Um, and that's what we do. Um, um, also, patients who, ha- who, who we have discontinued because of toxicity, for example, um, um, and had some clinical benefit after half a year or so, we would re-challenge um, if that's uh, possible. So um, even if the patient had certain degree of uh, toxicity, because very often you don't have any other options, so that's uh, on a patient-by-patient uh, discussion and uh, risk-benefit, evaluation, uh, but uh, we do that, yes. And I mean, this makes sense if there is some benefit. Um, um, I mean, if you have seen after eight weeks or 12 weeks, uh, the patient is uh, rapidly progressive, then it obviously does make sense. But um, if you have uh, a certain benefit, which is then fading away, uh, yes, uh, we would do that.
0: So there is a question for all, but Jean-Jacques, you surely... Can be the first because um, it's about the BCC. The question is regarding the use of a uh, drug inhibitor uh, in term intended schedule. Uh, what are the main reasons to use this scan versus the switch into semiplimab? So probably, yeah, it's related to. The question, if sem-
2: question is why selecting a drug rather than PD1 in first line. So
0: before, line? yes, for the patients who are intolerant to a drug inhibitor, why don't use a more flexible schedule?
2: Um, I, I mean, uh, I would say all patients are intolerant to a drug inhibitors <laughs> in a way. Uh, uh, they accept or they do not accept. Uh, they can uh, go for a treatment for a long treatment if you do it on in an intermittent way. So of course, PD1 uh, would be uh, very interesting in the first line. Uh, my My intuition would be that it would be better in a slow disease like this one to start with pd one but uh, for the moment it 's just impossible but to start with pd one inhibitors, if you are lucky to be in the responders and you know that you will have a long response without uh, in most of the situation without adverse events. And uh, then, if you don't, it doesn't work, then you go to edge drug inhibitors that you will never stop. You will have to treat for years uh, with uh, adverse events. So it would be, in a way, logical to start with anti-PD-1. But for the moment, we don't have the data.
0: Um, What do you believe about this possibility? So in in your opinion, also, Danny, so now we have this data, 30% response. That is good, but it's not so high like the CSCC.
2: H Hog inhibitors,
0: uh, in Hog inhibitors resistant patients or uh, intolerant. But to what about patients. the first line? Do you see any possible role in the future for the first line or Hog inhibitor remain the most uh, important?
2: I, uh, I give you the microphone. I say, well, yes, because it, it, it seems logical. You have plenty of time with a BCC, so you can try something. And trying PD1 inhibitors seems to be very logical, and then we'll see.
3: I mean, we have seen in all, uh, stick to the non-melanoma skin cancer field, in all um, um, settings, Merkel and others, um, that uh, in pre-treated patients, response rate and durability is lower than in first-line patients. So, I think, obviously, one would expect to see that also in SECs and uh, BCCs. Um, I think that's the best option to treat those uh, patients there. And I mean the situation in BCC, in locally advanced and metastatic BCC, is now similar to what we had, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago with ipilimumab uh, approval only for second line and uh, we were forced to give uh, a drug uh, which was not of curative intent, DTIC, for one cycle to say, okay, there is toxicity and then switch. Um, I'm afraid um, several uh, people will do that uh, also now.
0: there something to add then?
1: Yeah, I, I just, I mean, obviously it has to be tested in first line, but I think the response rate, we shouldn't focus on the complete response rate, which is actually low, but actually it, it, this, the durable respo- responses even in the second line are probably higher than you know, hedgehog inhibitors where you've actually probably only got 10% that have real long-term control after you set, stop the drug.
0: Okay, so there are other questions, but uh, the time expired. I'd like to thank all of you, uh, Professor Riching, Professor Grob, Professor Schadendorf, for uh, the great presentation, great discussion, and I'd like all of you for the attention, and I'd like to wish you uh, great ESMO. So, have a good evening.